When one is in Egypt, one should delve deeply into its treasures, such as episode 0010 of A Review to a Kill, which is a look back on the James Bond film franchise presented to you by fanboysanonymous.com. I am your host, Tony Mango, and I'm joined by my instruments of Armageddon, Robert DeFelice. So this is a Jaws movie, correct? It is. It's uh, the sequel to the original where the shark strikes back. Good. <laughs> and Callum Wiggins. We've already got to stop making like this. <laughs> uh, you got a feeling uh, somebody doesn't like you? <laughs> <laughs> well, prove me wrong by donating to the Patreon. A dollar a month is a steal for all the content we've been pumping out, and every bit is greatly appreciated and helps the channel and the website grow so that we can present to you more and more content like this podcast series. So if you want more, the power is in your hands. Also, let's pick up some merchandise on TeePublic and Redbubble, but... Before we get into all that, we're going to talk about our opinions of The Spy Who Loved Me. That is the film that we are currently on right now. Go back and check out all the previous episodes if you have not checked them out already. And tell us your thoughts on this film and all the other ones and your thoughts on our thoughts on this film in the comments section below. Subscribe to the YouTube channel if you haven't done that already. And ring that little notification bell. That way you get the alerts of when these videos go up. Usually I post them at 10 in the morning on Fridays kind of thinking about experimenting with other times here and there to see if maybe that might be a little bit better on like a Thursday or something. I don't know. We'll see. If you have any suggestions about that, let me know too. Maybe you're like, man, I really would like this to come out in the middle of the week and give me a different thing to listen to on the way to work or, you know, whatever. Just hit me up and let me know. Um, Hit the like button as well on YouTube. Hit the share button if you got any friends or anybody that you know that you think would enjoy this series. Hopefully you're enjoying it as well. I'm having a blast doing this. Uh, and that brings me into our taglines for this movie. One of them was 007 blasts back. Yeah, he does. I, I wouldn't think that this would be the type of movie where it's like he blasts back. <laughs> There's a lot of other movies that have a lot more like explosions and everything in it. Another tagline was he's Bond, he's back, he's 007. <laughs> I think that that's just bad. <laughs> Those are all accurate statements. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, he's Bond, he's back, he's 007, he's tall, he's got brown hair, he likes suits, he <laughs> just goes on and on and on. And another tagline was, it's the biggest, it's the best, it's Bond and beyond. <laughs> the next movie's Moonraker. <laughs> Bond and beyond would have been good for Moonraker, but this really sounds like it's just talking all about its penis. I might bet very well be. <laughs> So, The Spy Who Loved Me is what we know it by, and of course, one of the other things is foreign language titles that I like talking about here. A lot of them, pretty standard. Uh, whenever you, they can translate super, super well, it's never as fun, because then you just get The Spy Who Loved Me, The Spy I Loved, you know, whatever, that kind of thing. Maybe I get a couple that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, 007 Beloved Spy was Finland's uh, Swedish title. Finland also did 007 My Beloved. There's uh, An Agent Who Loved Me for the uh, Czech side of things. Uh, <laughs> Portugal has 007 The Irresistible Agent. And <laughs> Taiwan has the best one. Undersea City. They <laughs> couldn't just call it Atlantis. Or <laughs> 007 in the undersea city, 007 in Atlantis, 007 
rocks the water. <laughs> I don't know, like if an undersea city. If it's Atlantis. Yeah. <laughs> 007 tour guide. Uh, it's Atlantis. He's back. He's 007. It's Atlantis and beyond. <laughs> Some kind of thing. National Lampoon's Vacation 007 in Atlantis. <laughs> <laughs> The spy who thought I was okay for a little while, but she's not going to pop up in the next movie. <laughs> uh, I'm going to bury the lead here. A lot of people absolutely love this film. It's one of their favorites. It's one of these movie sets widely considered one of the better ones by a lot of people, and I'm not one of those people. I think it's a rehash that has a lot of potential that wasn't tapped into. It's very, let's just do You Only Live Twice, but change a couple things. Uh, there's a few elements I really like, but they're more so peppered in among a sea of meh, rather than like the driving forces of the film. Generally speaking, how did you guys feel about this? Yeah, this one is, I don't want to say forgettable, but it's like largely middle range for me. I, uh, I enjoyed it for the most part. It's not like at the top, top end of my thing, but it's definitely on the positive side of things. And I felt that it filled, it filled in a lot of the issues that I had with From Russia With Love. I think it was an improvement on that. So your biggest uh, criticism for anybody who hasn't checked out the From Russia With Love one was the romance subplot wasn't doing it for you. And this time around, well, they did a better job. Well, it's the issue is the fact that the romance subplot shouldn't be the romance subplot in something called From Russia With Love. It should be the main plot. And so that was the thing. It just felt very contrived. And, and there was still definitely room to improve on, as we'll discuss in The Spy Who Loved Me. I think they're, I think they're one or two scenes away from really nailing that side of the story, but I think it was much better do- done in this one than in, in uh, From Russia With Love. So we're going to go through here uh, with a positive mental attitude because that is part of the training. And um, we're going to break down... I, I, I draw the line of the bodily warmth thing. <laughs> I don't think we're going to be into into that. I don't smoke cigarettes either, so, you know, you can be uh, rest assured that's not happening. We're going to break down the girls, the gadgets, the villains, the music, the action, the humor, the sidekicks, all the other things that come along with this that we've been doing here. And uh, I guess let's uh, just kind of start with the beginning. Uh, the opening, Gun Barrel, the way that it should be with a gun barrel. Daniel Craig films. Not a fan at all of the funky gun barrel music the, or the funky music in general throughout this film. It's Marvin Hamlish instead of John Barry. And I hate the disco vibe. Yeah, I forget what podcast it was now, but you said, well, hold on, because by the spy who loved me, you'll really realize that you're in the 70s. And yeah. yeah. Once you start getting and it's like, oh, come on. What's this shaft? <laughs> it's so unnecessary. I can't comment. I genuinely didn't notice. Really? I, can't, I literally can't. No, I just, it just, most of the songs that I picked up on were the, um, like the different versions they did of the, the, the main uh, Spy Who Loved Me theme. And I just thought, okay, so they're just doing what they usually do, which is take the original song and just do some sort of reversion of it or just theming it around that. I didn't really pick up any of the disco themes. There are a couple songs in the soundtrack for this that I do like, but 
any of the disco ones I hate. Like I hate the disco vibe of the gun barrel. The one of the only ones I do like is the like the Atlantis theme. The do 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 I think that that's kind of like nice to listen to. But any of the you know bow chicka wow kind of bond versions just not doing it for me. And our um our opening past the gun barrel is very reminiscent of You Only Love Twice. It's the same formula. You watch a ship or whatever get attacked and abducted or what have you. This time it's a nuclear submarine. Or nuclear, as uh Homer Simpson would say. And it's just yeah, a typical run of the mill. It's uh oh, what's happening? Oh no, uh, and then we're introduced to General Gogol, the Russian equivalent of M who played Morzini in From Russia With Love. I remember uh, pointing out to you guys, we'd see this dude a lot more, but not as that character, because this guy pops up in a bunch of films going forward, and I love his character. Yeah, he's just M's KGB. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, uh, equivalent, but he's a bit more lighthearted and uh, pleasant than M is. <laughs> and that is very much needed, because as we've said in several podcasts recently adam just wants to kill bond <laughs> there throughout this franchise the way that m and bond interact with each other and then the way that gogol and bond interact with each other gogol likes uh bond way better than m does there's like gogol really and you'll see it more so in like um free your eyes only and a little bit in the living daylights and everything he really represents this idea of maybe we shouldn't make the Russians just the evil people <laughs> all the time. Maybe there's kind of some nuance to the idea that you can have conflicting governments and they can be the bad guys, but they're not the bad guys. They're just fighting for their country instead. And Gogol represents that. Uh, Octopussy, he's a big part of Octopussy. And I just, he's got this like, grandfather kind of vibe to him he seems like this like cool little dude i don't know i love google he's gonna be high high up on my list of uh allies which is weird to say allies when it comes to the russian m you know a couple other movies we go it's just kind of like those goddamn russians like you know that kind of thing and then it becomes like hey he's a good guy you know um there's a fake out of sorts where instead of Bond being in bed with a woman, it's some other dude. And Agent Triple X is called to report. And surprise, not only is that not the fake out, it's also Triple X is not that guy. It's the beautiful woman that's next to him, which I'm sure some people at the time were like, what? Oh, you know, I thought that this has to be the guy because it's an agent. It's like, well, you know, women can be agents too. Uh-huh. Um, he j- he's it's an agent too. Like- with an agent code name like yeah. Black. <laughs> you know, just a guess. I mean, I'm he, surprised Vin Diesel didn't show up. Yeah. Well, maybe it was uh, Ice Cube. <laughs> <laughs> he's an agent too, though. He doesn't get a code name that we uh, hear, at least in this. Um, but he's not Triple X. So I, I want to put a little bit of a pin in talking about Triple X for now. We'll, we'll discuss her a little bit later on. But this guy was someone that they actually looked at to potentially be Bond. At one point. Not surprising. He looks like he would be a Bond. Yeah. Yeah. So if you would have said like, well, you know what? Roger Moore decided he doesn't want to do any more going forward. This guy could have been Bond in this one. And I think that that, I don't know how he would have done. I've never seen like a screen test or anything like we have gotten with um, uh, 
Brolin, but like, um, yeah, maybe it would have worked. Maybe it wouldn't have. I don't know. So, uh, M asks Money Penny where 007 is. Uh, she says he's in a uh, mission in Austria, and M says, "Well, tell him to pull out immediately." We cut the bond on top of a naked woman. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciated it. Again, it's, it's very much of the time humor for the British uh, film industry. It's so good. I love those. And there's there's another one of them later on that uh, I didn't get even for a while. Like uh, I think I might have only gotten it like the third time I hadn't seen the movie or something. But they're in this log cabin. And uh, Bond gets a message on his watch, one of our first gadgets of the film, uh, our first gadget, technically. Um, and it prints out like a label maker, which is so dumb. <laughs> Funny, though. They, they were, you know, using what they had at their disposal. Yeah. So it uses the same technology as those arcade ticket machines. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great if there's just like a glitch and instead of getting a message of like, you have to report, he just gets like, this is worth three tickets. <laughs> You can get a, I don't know, a bouncy ball. <laughs> and Bond's just like, oh, sweet. Yeah. You know, pulls a uh, an auto from the, the lobster harmonica. <laughs> like, All right. Kind of thing. So he leaves. Uh, she's like, James, I need you. And he's like, so does England. And it's like, ba-ba-da-da. You know, James Bond to the rescue. But she's a double agent. She's working against him. She calls and reports to these goons that he's left the cabin. Q. A ski chase sequence where the music is super funky, like to an 11 on the 10 scale. It was a bit, yeah. And the rear projection at any time that they show Roger Moore is pretty damn bad. Awful. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. That's like, I mean, it's it's hilariously awful at the very least. So I get that. I get that enjoyment out of it. <laughs> but again, for the second like movie that we've had in this, I don't know where they're finding these people that are just the most awesome skiers that have ever existed. <laughs> yeah, this dude's great. Yeah, and, yeah, well, all of them are, because they're all just like, they're all going down this huge mountain, there's brilliant cin- cinematography for this thing. Everything that's not Roger Moore in just like, in front of a, <laughs> a motion screen is just fantastic. Yeah, and... Go ahead. No, like, this was really fun, and like Callum said, they have to be very good at what they do, because that's hard to do I, I imagine none of us could do that i've never gone skiing in my life but i also don't even know how to roller skate so i can't imagine i would do anything but fall on my ass uh we have another gadget here bond uses one of his ski poles is that, is that what they're called ski poles yeah pole yeah sounds right <laughs> all right <laughs> they might as well be that shows uses, how he's, he's, well i am with that uses, yeah he uses his second most powerful pole <laughs> to, uh... Well, you know, if you want to try to balance on, you know, a tripod kind of thing, <laughs> he uses that as a gun, which I think is pretty cool. That you know, Q outfitted him with a an extra little gun there. But the big takeaway for this is when Bond skis off the side of a cliff, and he opens a parachute and has the Union Jack on it. It is an iconic shot, not just in the franchise where it's easily one of the top five things that's in the bond franchise according to like pop culture but even just film in general like this is one of those things that you see in like compilations of movies where you'll get like et phone home and 
uh, no, I am your father and I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. And like that people will show this is like one of the go-to things. It's like the, the Sean Connery Bond, James Bond and this and Pussy Galore and, you know, a handful of different things. You know who came up with this idea? Who? The Roger Moore? George Lazenby. The points for Lazenby. He so did he want to do this in? He did he want to do this in? Yep. On a Majesty's Secret Service, and they didn't they didn't allow it to happen. They couldn't really figure it out or whatever. They didn't know where to put it in the movie. Whatever it was, they just didn't do it. And then when they came around to this, they're like, "Hey, remember that idea that George brought up?" That's a shame. That kind of sucks for him, you know, because if he would have done that, he would have been the one that would have been that iconic shot, you know, and they just sat on it for a couple movies. I just think that you've got this again. We've had, I don't know whether they're the same people, obviously, but if it is like the same awesome skier that then is also able to base jump and flip in midair multiple times before unleashing a parachute, like is that guy like the real James Bond? We don't know. (laughs) He also did this with, uh, if you pay attention to it, the one, um, ski hits the parachute and cuts it. So, like, this could have been really bad. And they almost didn't even get the shot. All, like, the people trying to film this weren't able to. Only one person was able to film it. That's why it's, like, the one steady shot. Is because that's the only shot that they have. So I don't know if it would have been originally one shot, but I think it works significantly better that way because then you don't have the whole, like, ah, you only did a little bit of it and then you cut it with some other thing. That ended up working out better in the grand scheme of things. Um, Happy accident. Oddly enough, there's a jarring transition from that, though, because you get the whole, like, you know, this, like, big action thing, and then it goes into the main theme, which is so mellow. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's all like, da 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 Nobody does it. it, it it's kind of jarring, but... The main theme is not called The Spy Who Loved Me. It's Nobody Does It Better by Carly Simon. Easily the most relaxed theme we've heard so far. And it's a love theme, which is rather fitting given the name of the movie. I love this song. It's a good song. It's, oh, it's awesome. I was going to ask if Callum didn't like it because they were just talking about his magic penis. But yeah, <laughs> it's a good song. Well, no, but it, it makes sense into the theme of it. Like... I love the way that they managed to just fit the words of the spy who loved me in it and not really take away from the overall message of it. Because well, I had heard this song before I, before I knew it was associated with Bond 1, I wouldn't have been able to tell. Mm-hmm. Even though it has the spy who loved me in it, because it's kind of just buried within the rest of the lyrics. But yeah, it's just really mellow. I'd never heard of Carly Simon before this. Really? I don't know of any other song that she's ever done. So... So I can't say I can't say anything to that, but this is awesome. This is like it's just an absolute classic tune. It does feel like it could have been in another movie. It could have been like the the backup theme. Like eventually we get to a point where and they don't do it for every Bond movie. They haven't done it for a couple of the actually they haven't done it for any of the Craig ones. Now I'm thinking about it. But in the Brosnan era in particular, they tended to have like two themes per movie and in the two Dalton ones, they have like the main theme and the love theme kind of. So this could have very easily been just a different one. Um, I'm looking up Carly Simon's best hits. That's the main one. Yeah. You're so vain. You probably it's think this song is song about you. I have heard it. I just didn't know it was her. Yeah. yeah her. Uh, I love the lyrics of this too. Uh, 
in particular that also would have worked <clears throat> Stavon, by the way. yeah <laughs> you're so vain you're back you're beyond <laughs> uh i like um i wasn't looking but somehow you found me i tried to hide from your love light but have like heaven above me the spy who loved me is keeping all my secrets safe tonight i love those uh lyrics Very good. um <laughs> there's uh it's a little bit more direct with the the other part of the chorus of the um the way that you hold me whenever you hold me, there's some kind of magic inside you that keeps me from running, but just keep it coming. <laughs> How'd you learn to do the things you do? It's a little like, and you're great in bed. <laughs> you know, but I, I think that this is a great, great theme. One of the better ones, but honestly not one of the ones that uh, will be at the very, very top for me, which is, it sounds like that's like a, a ding on it, but it's, it's just because so many of them are so good that like uh like I know that Rob recently has gotten into a Vita will kill. Uh yeah, and it's like high on the list. It's hard to kind of balance out a song like this versus a song like a Vita will kill because you're in one mood one day and you're like, I really listen I need to listen to like a banger type of thing. Nobody does better, doesn't really apply as much, but I mean, if you're just going pure quality, like this is a top tier type of thing too. Um, we'll break down our rankings a little bit later on when it comes to the music things. We'll come back to that. The, uh, the imagery is, you know, typical silhouettes of naked women and such. Nothing super awe-inspiring or different. Uh, Roger no, Moore. It is, it is super awe-inspiring and different. What are you talking about? They're doing like gymnastics across gun barrels. <laughs> and, and like there's, I, I love the awesome like stuff where they have like the Russian... Uh, like the, these five women in a line just as Russian comrades and stuff like that with the, the big Cossack hats and stuff like that and just it's it tells a story. He just pushes them the down. <laughs> silhouettes. It's not just, yeah, it's not just the silhouettes just moving around instead of things. Obviously there are elements of that but it actually just kind of tells a little story or they're very animated whereas in the other ones they're just like, okay, we'll just move around a little bit or just lay down whatever and stuff like that and this one it's just they're all doing something. It's all very active and also like Moore's in this as well, or somebody playing Moore is in this. You actually have a Bond silhouette as well. No, it's it's definitely I, I him. Really it. Is, it definitely, really. is it definitely is it definitely Moore in all of those ones? Because I assume it's not Moore the one who's flying in the air a couple of times and stuff like that. Oh, if it's like pure silhouette, then yeah, it's not him. But like you can see his face in a lot of the other ones. Like oh, yeah. when he oh, pushes yeah, down like them, that. you know. I like that as well. I also think it was probably something that he demanded. And that voice makes you like it even more. <clears throat> Um. So that's the uh, the opening uh, of the film. So at this point, you're like, "All right, let's get into the get into the plot," because the formula typically ends up being like, "Okay, scene after that set up sets up the plot." And uh, General Gogol, <clears throat> excuse me, informs Agent Triple X. Uh, we we get her name, Major Anya Amasova, that her lover, Agent Sergei Barsov, has been killed in the Alps in the previous scene. He is like, "I, I know you're." hook it up, you know, that kind of thing. I know he's somebody who's special to you, not just another fellow agent, whatever. I think that's a pretty interesting hook, that it's like, oh, just some guy that got killed in the opening is going to be the lover of the main Bond girl, and Bond killed him. I like that angle. Yeah, yeah, add, add something to immediately well, when they get together in this entire, like, through the mission and stuff like that, it's something that can be a source of tension between them. At some point, so yeah, I liked a little that little wrinkle. Yeah, and 
I guess we'll get into it later, but I thought this was one of the better stories as far as Bond girls are concerned. And this added to that. And uh, Bond meets up with some of his people. He meets up with Q and Captain Forsyth and Captain Benson and Admiral Hargraves and Minister of Defense. <laughs> it's just like, you didn't need to have these many people in this scene. Um, Minister of Defense here, Sir Frederick Gray, who Bond calls Freddy, is in, I think, the next like four movies. They just sort of made that uh, character another big part of this. Like, uh, there's over the course of the franchise, there's a handful of administration people. And it's pretty much usually M, Money Penny, Q as like the main three. But then there's Bill Tanner and there's Sir Frederick Gray as like the B tier. There's Charles Robinson and um, Villiers and a couple other people that like pop up here and there. Uh, I, Minister of Defense is a character that he doesn't really stand out too much and particularly in this movie. But the more that you see him, the more I'm like, yeah, oh, I like Freddy. He's just he's just a guy. I like him. You'll see more of him. They look over this map and they explain, uh, Q explains how people have been figuring out how to track submarines underwater. And they're just, you know, just basically setting up the plot here. Hey, he was not told to shut up this time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's because M's not in this part. <laughs> then he would have been like, shut up, Q. Bastard. <laughs> and kill Bond while you're at it, you know. And we're introduced to the guy who's tracking those submarines, Carl Stromberg who has this swanky room. He's eating lobster. He's paying these two schmucks uh, $10 million to work on this project. And he says that someone's, uh, he's found out that somebody's been trying to sell the plans of that to competing world powers. So he excuses his his assistant. She goes into an elevator. Strongberg presses a button. The elevator uh, floor falls down. She goes into a shark tank. And they've got a box air on the G-string to uh, playing in the background, this classical piece, where we see she falls into the shark tank and uh, dead. <laughs> Three of them are watching. The guys are scared shitless, naturally. So, they even uh, hesitate to go into the elevator. <laughs> so has this franchise, like, literally and figuratively jumped the shark at this point? <laughs> because... There's been sharks in what about half <laughs> these movies now. You figure there's uh sharks in uh sharks in Thunderball. There's sharks in Was there sharks in Live and Let Die? No, wait, no, that's the alligators. There's sharks in yeah, the, the book in the for Live and Let Die. There was yeah, there were sharks in uh yeah, in um oh just trying to check check through the list of these and, ones. And there's piranhas and you only live twice. With the trap yeah. door that makes you fall under, you know. Yeah, Diamonds of Forever has them. Diamonds of Forever, um, not living that die. I think. I think the previous did, did, was there some sort of involvement of sharks for a little bit in Man with a Gone Gun. I'd be making that one up. But that's how I can remember. They don't have freaking laser beams on their <laughs> I think that I think there's at least like three of the movies so far that have had some sort of shark involvement. And there's got to be more. That's right. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. The little quip about it being a Jaws film, not only because mm-hmm. of obviously Jaws, but like, yeah, sharks. Sharks are fun. I like the bit though where they watch this happen, and then when he's just like, "All right, guys, you can leave," 
and they're like, uh, uh, should we go in the elevator kind of thing? It doesn't matter anyway, because he blows up their helicopter. <laughs> there goes the, the need for the $20 million, right? Well, I just, I just love the idea of it's like he's, it's villains being villains towards villains. And that's like makes a super villain like even more dastardly. So I just love the fact that he like, they, the thing blows up and he says, cancel the transfer of $20 million and also, um, Tell tell next of kin that there's been a terrible accident and stuff like that across the water. It's just there, like, there's a funeral at sea. Yeah, it's <laughs> a good line. And uh, we're also introduced to the two main henchmen of the film. There's three real henchmen, but uh, one of them's not popping up until later on. One of them is Sandor or Shandor. Actually, I'm not too sure if it's pronounced Shandor. He's a big dude, short, stocky, built like a tank. But the real standout here, Jaws, he is a monster in an entirely different right. He's 7'2", and he's got metal teeth. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's fucking, it's great, it's good shit. <laughs> Jaws it's is really fucking awesome. awesome. Yeah, this, this is what you want this over-the-top, ridiculous henchman villain to be. Because mm-hmm. like we're long past the point of these movies representing any kind of, you know, realistic legit spy work like, fuck it. yes give, give me jaws and you know what give him laser beams too like it's great i, yeah, it's just I like, forget what jaws is actually called in like the book let me try to look that up real quick but, but it's getting to the point where the henchmen the best henchmen in these movies are whether this is a, a, a pc word say or not but they're freaks essentially they are like odd job is like freakishly strong and has that spinning hat that you can use and stuff like that and um it's just just yeah there's just like uh jaws obviously is just huge and stuff like that t he has got his uh, ridiculous claw hand and stuff like that um uh nick knack is tiny yeah like very very aggressive stuff like, that. like red grant is basically a built up machine of a human being essentially so they, they always have some sort of freakish element to them, but I enjoy that. He was called Saul Horowitz, a.k.a. Horror, in the, I mean, uh, in the book. That name is horrifying, because it's not as good as Jaws. And they, uh, we'll talk a lot about Jaws throughout here, um, because he's one of the standouts of the franchise. He is so good in so many different ways. He's popped up in plenty of other things. You know, you could play as him in Goldeneye. He pops up in the Everything or Nothing video game. Uh, Richard Keel is who plays Jaws. He, for anybody who doesn't know him from the Bond franchise, you might know him from Happy Gilmore. He's the really tall dude, obviously the really tall dude, who is like, hey, Shooter McGavin, I'll see you in the parking lot. <laughs> Keel, uh, for all that I've heard, is like a, he was like a great dude too. And another person who almost played the part was David Prowse, who was um, Darth Vader. Yep. They ended up going with uh, Richard Keel instead, which I think was a that would have been smart awesome. way. I mean, like, just for the connection there, to play Vader and Jaws. I'm surprised that he, Prowse didn't play a villain in one of these series. I think, well, I guess he could have obviously played Jaws because Jaws is mute. Because always his issue with the Darth Vader thing is the fact that he was from, uh, I believe, the West Country or Wales. Mm-hmm. And so he had a very distinctive accent, which he, uh, which wouldn't have worked so well for a uh, 
a, 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 a big movie that you'd want to be playing in um, Hollywood and stuff. If you listen to like his uh, original delivery of the Darth Vader lines, it's very weird because <laughs> this is like you're part of the Rebel Alliance and a traitor. <laughs> kind of, and it's like no, 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 that's not Vader. <laughs> like, and he was apparently pissed about that too. Just being like, "What do you mean you dubbed me?" It's like, did you listen to it? <laughs> like, this guy does not fit the Darth Vader look. Jaws uh, doesn't speak a word in this movie. He does in another one though. Um, so Bond goes to Egypt. Uh, he rides camel. You know, this is one of those like the local flavor type of things. Now, do you think that at any point in time these films were actually seen as like a good exploration of different cultures? Oh, they had to be. <laughs> like, I-, I was thinking about that with this movie in particular, and I'm just like, there are probably some people who are like, oh, these movies are great. They teach you about other cultures. They're fun. <laughs> like, no. It would surprise me if there wasn't some like a uh, school board somewhere that would have been like, we have this multicultural class and we're going to watch the Bond films to right, show like you like, school, like high yeah. seniors. Hey, look, you're, you're taking different cultures. Like watch Bond. This is how things are settled in the gypsy way. <laughs> like, you know, that kind of thing. Be like, you know, let's talk about people with other accents. I speak English. (laughs) (laughs) So he meets up with his old Cambridge friend who uh, fills him in on how he'll have to contact uh, Aziz Fekish. And in typical Bond fashion, uh, this guy's like, can I persuade you to accept a bed for the night? And Bond's like, I don't know. I got a lot of stuff to do. And this beautiful woman wearing a very flattering outfit, to say the least, comes over with a rose and the guy's like, are you sure? So Bond hits him with a line uh, that I said at the beginning about delving into Egypt's treasures. <laughs> and the the look on Roger Moore's face when he says it too is great. It's just this kind of like, hmm? It's a good line. It's a good Bond. Um... Bond goes to see Fekish, but there's just a woman there named Felicia, Felica. Her name's spelled F-E-I-L-F-E-L-I, I can read, C-C-A. So I'm assuming that that's Felicia, but I've just never seen that spelled that way. Never bothered to look up what her character's name is because she doesn't really factor into the plot too much. Um, She's there to entertain Bond while he's waiting. By that, she means, uh, let, let's fuck maybe? <laughs> And he says, well, I had lunch, but I seem to have missed dessert. (laughs) It's It's like you just did one of these lines, but okay. Really like something he needs to walk in the room and go, who else but Quagmire? Yeah. (laughs) He's Bond. He's back. (laughs) I I, I do like like in this section where Bond... um, uh, he keeps asking questions about where Fekish is. Mm-hmm. And she says, um, you're very suspicious, Mr. Bond. He says, I find I live much longer that way. It's good. Uh, like. The where's Fekish is like one of the go-to lines I think of with this film. <laughs> like if you were to say like, quote, Goldeneye, I'd be like, you know, buy me a pint or like, uh, she tastes like strawberries or like a whole bunch of different lines throughout that. If you go with, uh, quote, the spy who loved me, it's like, Where's Feckish? <laughs> like, 
just kind of one of those <laughs> sticks with me. Um, but here's a bit that I don't get, to be honest. I never understood the intentions of the scene. He's asking her where Feckish is, and she says she can't answer that question, and immediately starts to get nervous. So clearly she's suspicious in some way, but she looks over to a goon with a gun, and she gets scared, says no, and Bond barely twists her to the side so she gets shot instead of him. What the fuck? Am I dense, or is this poorly done or just not not in like the sense of like the terrible way that they filmed it which was really bad it's a lot worse than like the Fiona Volpe thing despite it being years later but are we meant to think that she was working with Sandor and immediately had a change of mind about Bond or that Bond knew this was about to happen and he used her as a human shield because he knew there was about to be a gunshot or it's just a pure coincidence or that she didn't know that the goon was there with the gun. I, like, what is this? Maybe you guys can make heads and tails of this better than I can. I think it's it's very likely that Bond knew because he's been in this position before and he just knew, okay, you're you're expendable, sadly, you know. But yeah, it wasn't it was poorly done. Yeah, I can't I can't give you an explanation without making up one in my own head for it. It would have made more sense if you said something like now instead of no. Right, so yeah. That would be the thing of the guy shooting him. It's just like, it says now, and then he fires, and then Bond twists her around into it because she's being intimidated by him. Uh, but the fact that she says no, it makes it feel like, oh, no, don't take the shot now. And Maybe it's just the idea that maybe, maybe as Rob said, maybe Bond does know that that's the situation, so she says don't shoot because I'm about to die if you do that. The whole thing's just poorly done. Never like that. But there's the the sacrificial lamb, you know, pretty girl. She gets about forty five seconds of screen time. But is that but, like? I haven't really kept track of it, but that's the running trope at this point, right? Like, there's always the bond, the main bond girl, and the sacrificial lamb. Yeah, the, the usually it's a villainous bond girl, the main bond girl, a sacrificial lamb. And at least one other one throughout the movie that he just literally sleeps with, and there's nothing other than that. Like later on, well, he's gonna the, bang his teacher in one of these, you know. Like, well, there's the femme fatale also in that sort of aspect as well. Yeah, and she's. I, don't, I guess you could kind of constant. No, you can't actually. You can't constitute because later on we get the other henchman. But every um, class was a sacrificial lamb either because she yeah. was actively doing something to try and at least, at least on the surface. Confound Bond. True. Throw him off the center or anything along those lines or distract him so he can be killed. So she can't be really be a sacrificial lamb because she's not innocent. And we have the log cabin girl as another like femme fatale well, she's not kind innocent of. Either. Yeah. No, the femme fatale type. Yeah, yeah. I mean, realistically, in this movie we get one main bond girl and three different different tiers of femme fatale. Yeah. So Bond fights with uh Sandor. After a minute of some very slappy punches, <laughs> you know, the kind of like <laughs> kind of punch things and a bear hug and such. Um, Sandor is dangling off the roof, holding on to Bond's tie and Bond asks, where's Feckish? And Sandor goes, pyramids. And Bond just knocks his hand <laughs> from the tie as he falls to his death. What a helpful chap. There's henchman number one done already. I love that little bit. We don't have time to waste anymore. It's 1977. Yeah, it was, it was just a, a fun, probably a bit too overly choreographed fight scene, but yeah, it's uh, just, again, it's another one in the repertoire of, 
Wow, what a dick. Yeah. <laughs> He's just like, oh, uh, uh, where's Fekish? Pyramids. All right, you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> he told you what you wanted to know, and you just killed him. Yeah. Well, he's not Batman. He doesn't have a moral code against this sort of thing. True. No, but, what, but why should I like Bond? Why am I supposed to like Bond and not like... <laughs> killing the foreigners, Kellen. That's all these movies are. <laughs> he's, he's Sandor. He's not uh, Bill. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, that's clearly what it is. Is it just because I'm not? I don't see Stromberg's license to kill. Is that the only issue? He doesn't have, or oh, he doesn't have a license to do that that's killing. A, or that's a, that's the problem. He's not licensed. Yeah, exactly. Well, don't you, license to kill. Don't you understand how cops work? <laughs> I wish I did. <laughs> so I mean, uh, you got to go to the pyramids. So Bond goes. All right, I'm gonna go to the pyramids. <laughs> he heads to the pyramids. He sees that Feckish is talking to Triple X, who he doesn't know yet. We know, of course. We does know. Um, eventually, yeah, we, we well, reveal we, that. Well, but no, like, well, we, well, we discussed, yeah, that, yeah, we reveal that, but right now he just sees a beautiful woman, and then he's got interest. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, interesting way to present this, with the tour guide presentation thing. Apparently narrated by Charles Gray, who was Henderson and Blofeld. I didn't like it all that much i hate it i absolutely hate it i hate the music i hate the when they keep showing the jaws shot and it goes i think it's absolutely terrible Eh, i I wasn't offended by it uh i think if you recut the music and you have i'd love to see somebody do this you put like a serious kind of track to it and not that music. I think it can come off really well, but that, that disco music just kills it. Yeah, but it's also like, it's of its time. You're probably right when you say that, but I look at that in the same way. People try to take the laugh track out of the big bang theory. And it's like, look, you see how much more cringe that is. It's like, yeah, yeah, but it's meant to be there. (laughs) And it's pretty bad when you listen to that. Like, a show like uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia that has no laugh track. If you were to put that in there, it'd be kind of strange, but it's even more strange when it's just Bazinga silence. <laughs> yeah. Feckish leaves. He sees that, you know, Jaws is coming after him and whatever, and he tries to lock himself into this little area. I don't know where he got the lock and the key and everything, but whatever. I'm not supposed to think about it. And Jaws bites the chains to break them. They used the licorice for the chains. That's how they were able to do that. No matter what they were doing, though, anywhere that he used that prosthetic was terrible for his mouth. Like, they did not figure out a way to get that prosthetic to be good. So him biting down on the chains probably fucked up his mouth, like, for a long time. And uh, he kills Feckish by biting him in his neck. Yes, he's a vampire. I don't totally. like the like Feckish doesn't do any scream bloody murder. It's almost like oh, like it's poison or something, and it's instant death. No, I mean he doesn't even try to escape. He just backs himself up to a wall, and it's just like I guess I'm dead now, you know. Yep. <laughs> and they love doing this bit during this whole sequence of the lights going out and somebody being revealed or somebody disappearing or whatever. No, he's gone. 
you know, Bond starts fighting with the Russian agents. He body slams one of them. <laughs> a good move. <laughs> Fans of pro wrestling, if you really like that, check out smartoutmoment.com. <laughs> and you'll hear plenty of stuff about body slams. No RKOs, no uh, super kicks. You know, he didn't slap his thigh or anything. Um, on another note, uh, behind Feckish sitting down is Michael G. Wilson in the whole pyramid thing. He's got cameos in, I think, every Bond movie after this. Because he's uh, Cubby Broccoli's stepson and a, a screenwriter and a producer. You know, he eventually, when they... Uh, when Cubby Broccoli wasn't the producer, uh, Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli are the ones that took control of the franchise. I forget which movie he becomes like a full-on producer for. It might even be the next one. I'm thinking about it. But he, like, at a certain point, the franchise is that guy and Cubby Broccoli's daughter, you know, his his stepson and his daughter. And Michael G. Wilson is one of those guys that going forward, I'm going to try to put him point out like i know that for instance he's uh he's on the television screen and tomorrow never dies he's sitting in the russian um conference table that dimitri mishkin is talking in um goldeneye and so on and so forth uh it's kind of like a hitchcock thing it's like a spot michael g wilson in these movies and um i like the little bit that when bond dispatches of the other agents he's just sort of like oh good night <laughs> uh, Anya I think the next scene's so much better though and I wish we didn't even get the like the pyramid thing the way that they had done it because we then go into the Mujava club I think that's how they pronounced it where Fekish had planned to go and meet up with somebody whatever and Bond meets up with Triple X who is looking at her best here, I think, in my mind. Like, her hair down, that dress. Total fox. Yes. Top notch. How do you... No, there was, like, she was surrounded... She was uh, had very wet clothing on towards the very end of this movie, so... No, that's, that's also a fair point, Cal. You know, there's, uh, there's two other parts that give her a run for her money in this. There's that, and there's the train sequence. But she, um... I guess let's talk about that. Let's go into that for right now. Not talking about the character itself quite yet, but as far as just the pure sex appeal element of it, how does she rank for you guys? High up there. Like, close to down there. Yeah, she's um, yeah, she's a, a very highly ranked one. I actually think that there's actually one Bongo in this movie that's ranked higher than her for my own personal taste, though, so. But, uh, yeah. But, but yeah, she's she's definitely one of the um one of the most attractive for sure. So she's higher than Mrs. Bell. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean uh, Barbara Bach. Like, there's I've always subscribed to this idea. I always say that there's four levels of attractiveness. There's uh, cute, sexy, hot, and beautiful. Where, like, for instance, cute and sexy are kind of like personality traits, hot and beautiful are just pure appearance, and then it's like hot and sexy are like the more like lustful ones, and cute and beautiful are the more like wholesome types of things. Somebody like um like a like a domino, I think is like top notch beautiful. Somebody like uh Anya, I'm like, she's hot. Like she's just like she's sexy. In a different type of way than some of the other Bond girls. 
I used the phrase, she's a fox. Like, yeah, it's very foxy in that time period. Um, and we you have a little bit of some quid pro quo going on. Bond knows uh, who she is. Uh, he even knows that she drinks a Bacardi on the rocks. She knows that he drinks a vodka martini, shaken nuts, stirred. We haven't heard that in the past couple of movies. And they share, like, you know, I know a little bit about you. I know a little about you, too. That kind of thing. And this is my favorite part of the film out of the entire movie. When she is giving his history, she's like, you have a license to kill and you have done so many times, blah, blah, blah. Many lady friends, but married only once. Wife killed. And he goes, all right, you've made your point. And she goes, well, you're sensitive, Mr. Bond. And he goes, about certain things, yes. I fucking love that. Because it's like, you know what? Tracy is not retconned. We needed that, like, at least two movies ago. We, this was, this was good. Yeah, absolutely. It's nice to see some continuity. That hasn't been totally forgotten just because it's a one-off movie. There's, uh, I think, maybe three other references to Tracy throughout the series. This might be my favorite one other than the one in License to Kill. But I, I just love that little thing because they very easily could have cut that out and just been like, uh, you know, many lady friends and like, you know, whatever. But the fact that they bring that up and that Bond, that's like the the one time in this movie for the most part that Bond just gets serious because he's goofing around the whole movie. But that time it's just like, shut up, don't talk about my dead wife. And I just I like that, love that. Uh, Lazenby gets two nods here. Yeah. You got the uh, parachute and you got this. Lazenby's just like, damn it, if you would have done this, maybe I would have continued or something. But And let me uh, have shaggy hair and a beard. Um, So they're going to bid for the microfilm. But uh, hey, Mr. Culver gets killed by Jaws too. And Jaws steals it. And <laughs> I like that Bond puts an out of order sign on Culver. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty fun. That was my favorite part of the film. <laughs> like, he he could go track him. That. Right. He could very much go, like, oh, I need to go track Jaws. And he's like, hold on real quick. <laughs> he just does that. Just... Bond throughout the series multiple times does something, even to his own detriment, just to make himself laugh. <laughs> it's, he's such a dick. And it's like, you wonder why I love this character, because it's just like, what an asshole. <laughs> He stows away in Jaws's van. Anya does the same. They travel, you know, for a while. She ends up falling asleep on his shoulders. It's kind of like a meet cute moment, even though they've already met. But yeah, it's that kind of like, oh, you know, this is gonna lead somewhere type of things. Um, that gets us to a sequence of the two of them and Jaws in this location with a these giant pillars, and they apparently use this like cardboard standout for where uh more. In certain shots kind of an action sequence for the sake of it. it not a whole lot is accomplished outside of like uh illustrating that they can work together and that jaws is hard to kill he's strong enough to rip the car apart with his bare hands and they got to get the microfilm but I mean, it's not like a you know completely pointless scene but it, the it's not my favorite i think it's um pretty important i mean the most interesting aspect to me about this entire scene is that they somehow managed to lose sight of a seven foot one monster. Yeah. He yeah. just disappears out of sight. Yeah, He's not that, that quick. <laughs> no, that's no, Bigfoot, but, though. No, but it sets a lot of things in motion. Like you have the nice little intri- interesting scene where uh, Bond takes the car keys from the van immediately before mm-hmm. they head off. 
And so when Anya gets the opportunity, she gets holding the microfilm. Bond helps her out, uh, manages to deal with Jaws at least temporarily by burying him in rubble, and then uh, and tries to start the van, but he's got the keys already, so she has to go off with him anyway, whether she wanted to escape on her own or not. And then they get they leave after Jaws basically destroys their entire van up, just punches it all over the place, rips things apart. It basically it sets up the fact that Anya and Bond's relationship right now is very much just focused on a mission and they'll each do whatever it takes to get what they want out of this. And it establishes the fact that Jaws is going to be pretty hard to kill and is pretty, pretty strong. Also, she genuinely feels like an equal. Much more so than anybody else at this point. Yeah. I, I, I would say that that wavers towards the end of the film. It does. <laughs> well, it very much yeah. does. So yeah. the uh, the lines that he's saying here, very much mostly Roger Moore ad libs about you know uh, she couldn't actually drive a, a stick shift, so she's actually fucking up driving, and he's just fucking with her with the whole like women drivers and all. It's a line you wouldn't say now, um, mm. but like that's genuinely Barbara Brock trying to do this and him just being like, oh, that's not how you do it. Uh, try to back up, try to do it like that. He's just, he's fucking with the actress more than anything. It's kind of like the teehee part of like the butter hook, you know, more is great for like, uh, just having fun with a lot of this. And then yeah, there's I, this, Oh God. No, I just said like, I enjoyed it. You had set me up with that, uh, women drivers line before. And I thought it was very good. There's this absolutely terrible music choice when they're driving in the desert. It's like a military march from a 50s comedy or it's like that. Da, 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 da. I have no idea what the hell they were thinking about that. It's maybe the worst piece of music in this entire series. And they also can't help but to put the Lawrence of Arabia theme in there, too. Well, it's very much it's the idea that it's in a bit of a fast situation because they're now stuck driving this wretched hunk of destroyed metal across the desert and so which is easily about to break down then when it does break down they're just left having to wander the desert on foot instead when they're both well they're still in the casino in evening gowns that they had the previous night and stuff like that so it's just a bit of a yeah i think they just wanted to add a bit of farce into it it's not great but again i don't really notice the music so that's it doesn't bother me that always gets me when it stuff like that because then i'm like and you went over the top and now it's not funny you know Kind of like if somebody falls, it can be really funny. But if they go, whoa, then I'm like, all right, come on. Now I'm not laughing. Yeah. Uh, so they get on well, a boat. I, I guess like th- something like that depends on who's doing the bit. I wouldn't. That doesn't fit Bond, but yeah, it might fit others. Like, I'm not a fan at all of uh, the Three Stooges. I really? don't. I don't think I've even smirked at a single thing I've seen from that. Let alone laughed. All right, we differ there, but I guess that's <laughs> what it is. But then again, like I love Dumb and Dumber. It's one of my absolute five favorite comedies of all time, and there's some slapstick stuff in there. So, yeah, slapstick as a genre, it's not inherently bad in my mind. It's just you got to do it right, kind of. I don't think that this is this is the right way of doing that. Well, they get on a boat. Bond checks out the microfilm with his another little gadget, the microfilm cigarette case or something i think it is um 
And then eventually Anya and Bond have this little exchange about it's being cold out, you know. Well, I, I went through this training in Siberia, and they, they tell you about uh, shared bodily warmth and all this, and she knocks him out with a trick cigarette. And it's got this kind of music playing, and I'm like, damn it, you ruined that scene too. <laughs> like, So much of this thing I hate about this movie is the music. But it, it, it. Thank God. No, you got it. I was, I was going to transition. <laughs> I was going to say that I like the uh, line where he says, um, is this really what they do in Siberia? And then she says, yes, but not how they do it. Yeah. Oh. But at the end of the day, she's trying to seduce him because she wants to get the microfilm. So mm-hmm. like, she's not doing it because she actually cares. She's doing it because she wants to get what she wants. Yeah. He's doing it for the sake of it. <laughs> oh, yeah, obviously. <laughs> like, he's, he's, he's got he's the microfilm. He's just sort of like, I'm going to fuck too. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So she's a good agent. She got the microphone, you know, mm-hmm. presenting her as an equal, just the way that they should. And uh, Bond goes, or, you know, we're seeing some more set piece type stuff. And he meets up with Money Penny. He goes to CM, but hey, there's General Gogol. So obviously he's immediately suspicious because there's the Russian M just sitting there in the room. But M's like, ah, it's all good. You know, we're working together. Uh, both of our submarines were taken out, so we're just gonna. You know, kind of be buds now. And there's this, this jokey little bit where there's this, uh, we see some Q branch stuff. Lots of wacky gadgets. There's a cup and saucers that is rigged to decapitate a dummy. There's a trap ejector seat. There's a, a hookah that turns into a gun. This, like, uh, machine that sprays this, like, uh, ink or whatever. It's just totally the the wacky Q branch thing, which we're going to get as like a regular bit going forward in this franchise for the most part. Obviously we're not going to break down every single one of those gadgets. Cause that's just, you know, we're not going to do that going forward either. Um, I also like the part where basically we have Anya there and then she hands over the microfilm and says like, Oh, we have the microfilm. I got it ridiculously easy as well. Yeah. Basically saying, Oh, it was so easy to get it because I just, uh, exploited a man's magic penis against it essentially. <laughs> and with considerable uh, and- ease. Yeah. yeah, and then Bond fires back by saying, "Well, actually, those plans don't have anything useful on it anyway." So, mm-hmm. uh-huh, jokes on you. Yeah, like, well, I let you take it because it's pointless. Uh huh. And they do this and- a little back and forth thing too with uh, when they're checking out the microfilm and they're trying to see if there's any other kind of clues, and uh, they spot Stromberg's lab logo, and it's like, oh, it's oratory, it's whatever. Oh, it's laboratory, it's whatever. Ha ha ha. Well, that's actually in this place, and. Gogol's just kind of like, this is great. We're all having fun. We got my agent. We got your agent. Yeah, what a great day. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was funny that there was at one point where Bond says a lot of the stuff about the laboratory and he says it's in Corsica. And you actually feel for one second that M's warming back up to him because he says, like, well done, 007, about all that <laughs> yeah. stuff. That impressive. And then she says, it's actually in Sardinia. And then you just feel like, oh, okay, you're going to die, Bond. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like, oh, good job, Bond. I'm, I'm glad that you're my agent. Wait, wait, that's wrong? You fucking prick. You motherfucker, <laughs> like. I can't uh, believe you're going to make me look bad in front of Gogol like that. <laughs> like, then we get the uh, train sequence. They're on a train. <laughs> it's, uh, they kind of flirt okay. a bit. No sleeping together just yet. And, uh. For a little bit there, it seems like the standout of the scene is going to be how good she looks in her nightgown. Because, like I said, 
She looks amazing in that. Uh, arguably tops her look from the club, in my mind. Definitely eye-catching. But then jump scare adds Jaws in her closet, and you're like, fuck! What the that was a good jump scare. <laughs> yeah. that get you, uh, Rob, too? Yeah. <laughs> it apparently even got Richard Keel. <laughs> he knew yeah, that yeah. the scene was filmed, and when he watched it, he jumped. <laughs> Just like, ah, fuck, there's me! There's <laughs> <laughs> me, oh, fuck. <laughs> Now I do like the train noise that for that too, because when that jump scare happens, it's like with the train, and you're like, Jesus God, what's happening? Um, third fight sequence on a cramped train in the series. How does this guy's uh, how does this rank to you guys compared to the Red Grant one from from Mush with Love and the Teehee one from Love and Let Die? It's not as good as Red Grant. Not as good as Red Grant. All right, we're all in agreement there. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the other two are pretty level, almost. Maybe mm-hmm. this one is slightly better because, like, Jaws is very much more difficult to take care of than T. He was. So, but yeah, but yeah, I, I like the idea of using like an electric lamp on his teeth. Yeah, shocking him with that. his teeth is really cool. And they would kick him out. I didn't really like so much the um, when Jaws leans in to try and bite him. You can really see his tongue sticking out. At some point, I just thought, okay, that's a little like you're supposed to be using the teeth there. Yeah, I I thought it was fun. It's definitely weird that they choose a train for so many fight sequences. Like after a while, you know, maybe just choose another mode of transportation. But I guess Bond gets it no matter where he is. So yeah, he does. I don't like the slow motion shot of Jaws being kicked out of the train. That's my my big issue with it. Uh, but Bond has a good line when uh, Anya's like, you know, what happened? And Bond's like, he just dropped in for a quick bite. <laughs> and... I don't know about the fact that he rolls down this hill after going through a fence and stuff like that. After being just kicked out of a high speed train, he just stands up, uh, dusts off his suit, and just readjusts his tie and starts walking again. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, this guy. I have to be shocked too. Like, yeah, this dude's practically Terminator. Yeah, and I like that. And I like that Bond uses the shared bodily warmth line to get her into his uh, cabin. He's really quick to think about. She's like, you know, what should we use for a bandage uh, for his wound? And he's just like, how about this? And starts taking off her dress. I think that there's a scene missing before this, where they show. Where I think. To, uh, at a certain point towards the movie, I don't want to like obviously spoil too much because I know we're going through chronologically. But towards the end, the, the thing about the guy being killed at the start of the movie gets brought up again, and I feel like there needs to be a bit more of an attachment from her to him at some point in the movie. Like that's the reason why she kind of stalls with Bond initially, because she, she it, it, the reason why she stalls with Bond on the train here is because she wants to be well rested for the mission. It's not because she doesn't want to fuck him. And it's just a case of, I feel like there needs to be more of an attachment between her and uh, uh, Barasova or whatever his name was, Barasova, um, rather than uh, that's the reason what's holding her back from falling with falling in with Bond at this point. I don't disagree with that at all. Yeah. <laughs> very, very astute, Cal. Yeah. yeah it, it, just need, it just needs that one scene. It doesn't even have to be long. Mm-hmm. It has to be like a two-minute exchange where they like... Maybe even at this point, I think that's the reason why she doesn't do it instead. But then he saves her life, and so she feels a little bit more warm towards him, and that, that happens. 
It's just like, and I'm not saying like it's, it's wrong really because at the end of the day they're secret agents. I assume they probably fucked people irrespective anyway because that's what the mission entails. Even if they did have someone at home. Yeah, it's just like part of the protocol. Part of the job. Yeah, part of the job. Like uh, M is like, here's your gun. Here's your condoms. <laughs> <laughs> uh, says, what, what, what are those? <laughs> Something like you came up with in the uh, in the lab. He does the thing from uh, with the Beretta where he tries to take the other thing and leave the thing. It's like Bond, take the condoms, take the gun too, <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. Uh, and I ho- I'm just now picturing like a spoof bit where Bond is trying to get you. To come up with all these sex toys, and he's like, "No, Bond, I take my work seriously. Come on." He's like, "Uh, so where's the pump on this one, and where's the vibration mechanism on this one, or whatever?" And he's like, "It's a homing beacon, dude. <laughs> like, just hell's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, I'm not that kinky. I've got kids. <laughs> just sort of, like, <laughs> I'm a desk guy. Well, let's talk about Q." He shows Bond his new car, the Lotus Esprit, this white sports car. Um, Bond asks you, have I ever let you down? And Q's like, frequently. <laughs> I like had the difference between like Bond and M and Bond and Q. Because Bond and Q, it's like playful nagging. M's just like, I hope you die, you shit. <laughs> like, you know. But I like that, obviously, too. You know, it's I love these relationships. The car, yeah, good. I would say it's a lot of fun. I also like the fact that when you see um, Q is guiding Bond around the car and explaining things, but you don't hear what they're saying because you take the perspective of Amasova or Anya because, like, you are um, you're supposed to be out of earshot from it because it's like the idea of I'll stay here because you're a Russian spy. We don't want you knowing what mm-hmm. this car can do. And that way, it keeps those surprises for later on in the movie where you're like, oh, it could do that. Okay, that's pretty cool. Instead of him being like, it does this and this and this and this, and you'll see that throughout the film. You know, that kind of thing. At least you're getting the idea of, okay, Bond knows that this is the way that it is because Q just explained it to him. And instead of being like, well, you didn't set any of that up. No, you did. You just, you didn't hear it, you know. Mm-hmm. About the car, I'm not a car guy. So throughout the series, if it's like, you know, oh, this is this type of car, and that's so great or whatever, it's like, I don't have any kind of perspective but people were clamoring to have this uh any car featured in the series of course so we talked about that with diamonds for forever where ford was just like we'll give you any car you need if you just make sure that he's got a mustang and the pr guy for lotus had this different idea he was like well you know what if everybody just keeps harping on you should have our car in this then nobody's going to stand out. So to make sure that he made a good impression, he drove the car to Pinewood Studios, waited until they broke for lunch. So everybody would like leave and they would be in this parking lot and see this car and people are like, oh, ah, you know, whatever. And then he just drove away. So that people were like, what was that car? Let's track that down. Let's try to figure out what it is. Totally worked because he got it in the movie. Uh, People wanted to buy this so much afterward that... There was a three-year wait list to buy that model after the movie came out. Guess who owns it now? Well, this particular model of the car. Mm-hmm. Nicky Vander. No. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would say um, Judy Dench. I'm you got a guess? More. 
Elon Musk. Dead, so. Of course he does. What the fuck? He bought it in 2013, and he said he has plans to make it a real submarine. Of course he does. You know what? I'm this guy. My I have been saying for years, this guy is a Bond villain. Like he has literally everything that you check off on a Bond villain list. He's bringing people to Mars. He's creating flamethrowers. He's got the, you know, like the facial thing going on because he had like the male pattern baldness that he corrected and whatever. He's got this weird eccentric uh, lover. That what was it? Grimes, I think is her name. Uh, this dude's a Bond villain. Their child is named like a, a bunch of random. Letters. Yeah, it's like Isn't Kevin, it? but there's like a. 17 in there or something like at some point this guy's totally being carl stromberger or hugo drax or something like it's it's a guarantee it's happening everybody just prepare yourselves for it like i've been prepared everybody's like oh he's the, the you know an iron man or a batman it's like no he's a bond villain and when that switch happens we need a james bond to be able to stop him from being hank scorpio <laughs> you know how have you been preparing have you just been have you just been sitting there waiting just when it happened just go yep told you so yeah <laughs> that is my preparation <laughs> for tony that is that's all he needs really if the world's gonna explode at least i'm gonna be right <laughs> so bond and anya are booked in a hotel room with two bedrooms and bond's like a money penny being a little over efficient <laughs> I like that she's either uh, jealous enough to do that or that she's just fucking with James. Either way, it's cute. I like that. Yeah. I think he he felt that he was explaining it to the lady at the desk because they're Mr. and Mrs. Sterling. So why would they have two bedrooms? Well, I mean, at that point, if he's like Money Penny being whatever, she'd be like, who's Money Penny? You know what I mean? (laughs) Uh, The person at the front desk, another beautiful woman obviously look at her uh but we meet this other beautiful woman this tall supermodel in a bikini named naomi stromberg's assistant you guys think by any chance that she looked like she had a scowl going on like a particularly like i'm I'm mad kind of a thing um i think that she had a very deliberate face I can't say whether it was a scowl or anything like that, but I think that she wanted to look a bit more villainous or a bit more vindictive. It's not I acting. Mean, <laughs> no, maybe not. No, maybe not. Maybe that's just what her face looks like when it's No, The thing was before that she sat on a bee and it stung her ass. <laughs> oh no. So she's like in pain and that's her being like, my ass hurts. <laughs> like, so, that's good. It's a little bit that I didn't know until I listened to the commentary and everything that they're just like, ah, poor girl. Like, uh, we're sitting there going like, well, you got to do this. You got to be sitting on this boat and whatever. And she's just like, my ass, like, this sucks. Now, she was dubbed by. Barbara Jefford. Yeah. No, Nikki Vanderzill. I just wanted yeah, to set you up. It didn't sound like that, so <laughs> yeah. No, Nikki Vanderzill this time around, which is a shame. Yeah, what the hell is that? You can't <laughs> uh, Bond and Anya go to Stromberg's facility on the water, Atlantis, as we've seen before, under the guise that they're 
you know, Mr. and Mrs. Sterling. Rob, yes, he says Sterling, Robert Sterling. So he's got that like built into his brain. And uh, Naomi uh, takes Anya for a tour. Bond like asserts his dominance to get her out of the way a little bit, but it's also sort of like, uh, maybe you can take a look around and see what's going on here. But everybody's just like, yeah, can you take her for a tour? I'll go talk to him. And <laughs> Naomi tells Bond specifically, Mr. Stromberg does not like shaking hands. So what does Bond immediately do? <laughs> Put his hand down because he's a total dick. <laughs> Just had to prove it for himself. Yeah. It's like, I didn't like that. All right. Hey, handshake. And you might not notice, and I didn't notice this the first God knows how many times that I've seen the movie. That's because Stromberg has webbed hands. They don't give you a close-up shot or anything. Huh. But he's supposed to, like, you know, have like just like the the webbing between his hands is supposed to be like really significant. And well, no wonder he wanted to live under the water. Yeah, kind of. He's like a like shape of water, you know. (laughs) The only time you can really see it is when he like he puts his hands up and he's doing like the the Mr. Burns kind of thing. But um, they they should have had like an insert shot of that or something. Maybe like when he was doing something with the lobster, you know, whatever. I think they could have pulled that off better. And um, Sorry, I, think, I was, was going to mention uh, just because uh, my brain spaced out for like two seconds. Did you did we uh, mention the fact that when Bond comes in and he looks through the aquarium, uh, like glass and stuff like that, he sees on the seabed a woman's hand and ripped clothing. Yeah, he he notices that, and this turns into a thing where Stromberg is trying to catch Bond in the act of quizzing him about the fish. It's like, oh well, you know, if you're a marine biologist, you clearly understand this uh, this guy. And Bond's like, mm, yeah, it's actually this one and this one, and then the, the spines or whatever like that. So Bond knows his shit. So it's pretty good. M, I'm sure, would be pissed. Yeah, I say M somewhere is thieving. He just like chucks a bottle of bourbon. He's just like, lepidoptery and this and read biology. <laughs> like he just, he just calmly eating dinner and it goes off in his mind that this is happening. He's like, oh, you motherfucker. I'm yeah. not even hungry now. He chucks his uh, plate, and then he's like, somebody give me my spoon. I don't like when my spoon goes elsewhere. Is that all that that coffee maker does? <laughs> um, so, uh, Stromberg knows anyway. You know. And instead of just killing him there, typical thing of, like, you could have just shot him, he wants him to get to the shore, and then Jaws to kill him. But it's not actually Jaws that goes to kill him. Instead, no, there's... Basically every other person. A series of other people. <laughs> I just, I, 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 again, it's it's another one of these stupid Stromberg or just any Bond villain thing of just saying like, oh, just kill him while he's there. Why would you not do that? But no, just gonna let him, let him go on the shore and then kill him there. Maybe that, they think that makes it look more like an accident or something like that. Or they don't want to, they don't want to attract attention to their base by having Bond die there or something like that. He might have a homing beacon or something to that extent. Maybe that's what their thinking is. But my main issue was the fact of why the fuck was Bond going there in the first place? Like, scoop it out, like, see it, what's up. Well, no, no, it's not the fact that like Bond. I can understand what uh, I, I probably phrased it wrong. It's not the reason why Bond is going there. It's more a case of Sterling was growing an audience with Stromberg, and then they talk for two minutes, and then Stromberg says, "I have, I have other business to attend to. You have to leave now." And but, he's like, "Well, what? this visit's really going to help with my work." You yeah, saw like, one fish. Thing? Yeah, what was this meeting supposed to to accomplish? Like, yeah, like oh, I've just granted an audience with you, but I can only see you for exactly like two or three minutes, and then I must go. Yeah, I get you on that one. 
I, I guess it's just one of those things where it's like, well, if we would have tried to make it seem like they were actually talking for a while, people would be like, this is boring. You know, it's probably that kind of thing. But there's this motorcycle following them. It's got one of those side passenger compartments, which is a rocket. <laughs> it looks dumb, I think. It blows up a mattress truck. So all these feathers go all over the place, and the guy goes off the cliff, and Bond says, all those feathers, feathers and he still can't fly. It's like they it's, manufactured yeah, it as all hell. <laughs> and then we get car sequence part number two with uh, Jaws shooting at them. Bond's car has got those ink sprayers or whatever. And we get the return of exploding cars. Or it crashes into this guy's house who's all like, Mamma Mia, what the fuck? Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Like, <laughs> yeah, it just, it just drives vertically down into the roof of the guy's house. <laughs> it blows and then up. Jaws gets it. Yeah, blows up. And George just steps out, just dusts off his suit again, and just walks onwards. It's like, okay, <laughs> this guy will never die. And then we get car sequence part three, <laughs> with uh, Naomi in a helicopter shooting at them. And they blow her up with a rocket, because uh, Bond's car drives into the ocean, and Anya is, like, scared. He's chill, because it's actually a goddamn submarine. Here's my question. Later on, she says she stole the blueprints of that car two years ago. So she knows it's a submarine. Why is she scared? I mean, obviously, it's to play to the audience, but like in the movie, she shouldn't be scared at all. Uh, you're you're asking guess, for too much logic. Yeah, I guess in the moment, she forgot because she just sees a car driving into the water. And then she just maybe when it hits the water, she realized, oh, yeah, it's a submarine. Maybe that's the start of the thing. Whereas in the moment, you're just like, oh my god, we're about to just drive into the water. Because she feels like, probably at that time, oh, we're just driving a car. Yeah. So Maybe she thought she, like, this she, is the non-submarine model or something. Well, we're just saying that, like, in the heat of the moment, you forget that sort of thing. Like, you're not you're not thinking as coherently as Bond may have been doing, because Bond has just been told by Q all this stuff, so he has it fresher in the mind. And Bond's a quick uh, learner, too. It's like, this does this, and that does that, and he's like, alright, I don't know exactly what to do. Or maybe she, or maybe she didn't know it until... Because as far as she is aware, before that happens, it's a Lotus Esprit. So it's just a case of once it hits the water and it turns the submarine, she goes, ah, yeah, this is the submarine uh, car. Oh, like they had the, the schematics for yeah, a because, submarine car and it's just it could be implemented in different models well, and everything. Well, it's more like that, but it's just the okay, like... Like there are other Lotus Esprits out there that aren't submarines, so it's like she doesn't know that this is this specific submarine car until it goes in the water and it actually turns into a submarine. And then she goes, "Oh yeah, now now I can start to work this thing because I know where I am." I, I mean, one of the things that I liked about this is just that Naomi is like flirting with Bond while she's shooting at him from the the helicopter. Like you'd have that little side by side shot of her just winking at him and him just casually responding to it and then looking back at Anya and okay, no, no, not going to happen. And we get a car sequence part four <laughs> of the underwater action. Music here is all funky and everything too. I hate it. Uh, David Arnold later calls inspiration from one of these things though. And he turns it around and he makes it like a really good bond theme. Like when we get to the Brosnan uh, and the first uh, Craig bits, David Arnold is so good at creating these like recurring themes where there's kind of like the go-to James Bond love theme 
which is like what they play for like Vesper and they play for a couple, a couple of people here and there, Paris Carver a little bit. And there's sort of this like bombastic uh, villain theme that kind of is like one of the things he calls inspiration from. So I, I do like that piece of music later, but I don't like it here. Blah, blah, blah. They, you know, they take out the bad guys. They, they do that kind of stuff. They, um, anything you guys want to talk about before we get to the beach? Nah. Right. I never know. Just like, yeah, just an underwater fight. Yeah. And they, uh, they spring a leak. So they drive onto the beach. And here's your reaction shot. You know, like I said before, you got the, the gag of the wedding cake and live and let die and, you know, whatever. There's this guy who's drinking a bottle of wine or champagne or whatever it is. I don't know. And he looks at the bottle like, the fuck am I drinking if I see this? And a dog runs away and whatever. They love this shit because they do the same exact thing in Moonraker. It's just like that, you know, da 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 Bond pulls out a fish, you know? <laughs> um, so Anya finds out that Bond is the one who killed her ex. And she says, you know, when this mission's over, I'm going to kill you. Bond's like, mm, well, that sucks. <laughs> I mean, I like I like Bond's explanation of it. Yeah. And he basically says that we both know what this this job comes with. It was either him or me. And it was him. And so she basically says, OK, well, I love the, that man. So after this mission, it's going to be my duty to kill you instead. Yeah, it's, now it's gonna be you, motherfucker. Like, yeah, it was him the last time. It's you this time. Let's figure this out. Let's work together. But we're not. Uh, we're not on good terms here. You know, I like that kind of hook. I do think that that could have been something that they could have introduced earlier in the movie, and maybe that would have been some better tension here and there. I mean, I like that they introduced it now after they had got grown close together. I think you need to have them get close, and then this thing just divides them apart. So I appreciate that aspect of it. I just feel like there needs to be, again, like one of those things, there needs to be another scene where there's that sort of thawing of the tension before the big climactic scene. And they go to this submarine. The captain's like, oh, shit, uh, pretty girl. I wasn't expecting you to be a woman. You want to use my shower? <laughs> like, uh, he does it in a better way, of course. He, he's like... Uh, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure uh that you'd I forget the line exactly, but it's something like, you know, you can use uh my quarters for a shower, and she's like, don't give me any kind of special treatment. And he's like, I'm pretty sure I should, you know, like that kind of thing. Because then later on, this uh other guy comes in to give him a report, and he sees that you know she's showering and you know check off uh, another thing of nudity in the Bond film franchise again, and um. He's like, what's the matter, sailor? Never seen a major taking a shower before? Yeah, this, I was surprised by it because like, this is the main Bond girl. Mm -hmm. And you see her naked. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. It's just like, okay, that's like, that's an interesting take on it. It just feel like if you're going to see a naked uh, Bond girl, it's going to be like one of the, I don't want to say like others and stuff like that, but one of the ones that's just going to be on for a few minutes because humanly they think they're like, oh, it's her big break and stuff like that or whatever. <laughs> And there's also this funny suggestive shot of the submarine rising <laughs> that comes out of that. I love those little innuendo transitions because it's just like that's that's more subtle in a way that I appreciate more. I think that that's my my 
style of humor. Um, and their submarine gets swallowed up by Stromberg's big ass boat. Very, you only live twice. You know, with the whole swallowing up the uh, spaceship type things, the rockets and whatever. And that gets us to this set. There's three submarines in it. It's fucking huge. Cost a million dollars. And it was the largest soundstage in the world. So huge, in fact, that it was so hard to light, like you couldn't see the ends of the thing, that they had to get... uh, The cinematographer was like, I need help with this. He got Stanley Kubrick, of all people, to help. Who did a... 2001 A Space Odyssey and Clockwork Orange and Ice Wide Shut and, you know, uh, all these different movies that are classics. Uh, and Kubrick's daughter, uh, stepdaughter, um, helped design Jaws' teeth. So that's uh, yeah, kind of weird. It's family affair. Yeah. Uh, but how long did it hold that title of, like, the world's largest soundstage? I'm assuming for a little while until we got to, like, that boom of like the nineties or something. I don't know hundred percent for sure, but eventually we start getting like, let's replace this aircraft hangar with things and let's build an entire city inside of this. And, you know, so it, it's probably not standing to this day, but it does beat out the, uh, you only have twice thing. Pretty sure. Well, yeah. yeah. Here's my major, major criticism of this film. At this point, Going forward, Anya is just a damsel in distress. Yeah, it's not great with that. I mean, yeah, Callum hinted at that. So, so I like the fact that, like, obviously they're trying to hide her identity at first because she's the one that most obviously be, could be able to spot because she is a woman. So, and we've already been clued into the fact that Stromberg knows who Bond and she is. So. He might see Bond because Bond's obviously not doing much to protect himself, but they're going to try and protect her at the very least because maybe she'll be able to be of use if she just goes thrown with the prisoners. But she gets like shoved, the hat falls off. They start fighting the guards for a little while, but then they get caught out un- outnumbered. Um, Stromberg does the typical Bond villain thing of like, oh, the beautiful girl, she will come with me instead and I will compel her to be mine through the sheer force of will. Rather than um, rather than you know, kill her because she's a dangerous agent. Yeah, it's the whole. She's beautiful, so let's slap her in a revealing outfit, and she'll be my bride. And I'll uh, I'll monologue to her, and she's not like Tiffany Case levels of incompetence, but that's only just because she doesn't do anything to actively hurt the mission like Tiffany did. Yeah, she just doesn't contribute at all. Instead, no, she needs. Yeah, I would like to have seen her do a bit more in terms of, I don't know what it would be, but whether it's like he saves her first and she's the one that kills Stromberg or Mm -hmm. just something that's where it's a bit more her, she's involved. That's like a big negative for me in the film is the fact that Anya is, again, like you say, a damsel in distress for the remainder of the movie. Oh, the submarine guys get to fight. Yeah. but like just to wrap up on Anya real quick, it it seems wrong, but it also seems like oh, this is the natural order of things. She's now a damsel in distress, and Bond will save her, and then utilize his magic penis. <laughs> it's like there's a- extended sequences of everybody else getting into the action. There's even this little part with this uh, this one younger guy where they give him like this hero's moment. 
and a, his own death. And Anya doesn't get any of it. And that's they really they they do her dirty with that. Yeah, they, they yeah they should like say so should have involved her more towards the end of it, give her something to do, or at least like show her being very um because she's just tied up in a chair. She needs to just be more aggressive towards Stromberg or something like that. I think it would have been better if she was the one that disabled the nuclear bomb. Like uh, that would have been good. It's got the magnetic edges, and I like that whole sequence. But it's like, okay, Bond's gonna be the one that kills a bunch of these guys, and Bond's the one that disables the bomb, and Bond's the one that uses the bomb to blow up the other thing, and then Bond's the one. And it's like, all right, well, Bond's got nine things to do. You could have given one of them, Anya. Yeah. Uh, well, I understand, but I understand also the reason why they needed to take Anya or someone away into Atlantis because otherwise they could have just said okay just gonna blow him up with torpedoes instead because there's no reason not to you have to have Anya on there because that means the bond has to go onto the ship itself and deal with them so that's where the final like climax comes from but I just wish that Anya would have done something while on there like bond frees her pretty early on she kills Stromberg they get away that way maybe she she helps him either cause a distraction or do something with Jaws, which allows uh, Bond to do what he does with Jaws in order to escape all that other stuff. Yeah, so there's, there are multiple places where she could have gotten more involved. I, d- I don't mind the fact that she was taking or taken away here. It's just that she has pretty much no impetus into the movie beyond that point. So I'm actually looking up this soundstage, and it's quite amazing what else has, this soundstage has been used for. So it was the Bat Cave in the 1989 film. Hmm. It was the Supercomputer Cave in the Superman 3 film in 83. <laughs> it's been used. It was used in The Last Jedi. Uh. The casino. <laughs> uh, used in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. As the Dark Forest. Like This thing has been in a lot of movies that we all have seen many times. Do you know if it still has that uh, record of the largest? It's it's the first thing that came up when I searched for the largest. It doesn't. It says one of the largest sound stages now, uh. but it's still very much in use. And obviously, they even filmed some of uh, No Time to Die. Hmm. So I have no notes at all until we get to Bond going to Stromberg. Uh, the next note that I have is him avoiding falling down the elevator trap. <laughs> Okay, so I have uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take it over a little bit. So you have the big battle scene. The first thing that I like about before even Anya gets taken away, we find out what Stromberg's motives are. And unlike any villain beforehand, or pretty much any villain beforehand, his motive is not to make money or to hold anything for ransom. His motive is the fact that he's fucking crazy and he wants the entire world to be buried under the water. Yeah, under the sea. No, yeah, that's what I literally wrote in my notes. This is what Sebastian would be like as a human being. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, he, he's the megalomaniac type where it's just like, no, I'm going to blow these places up. Yeah, he, thinks that he's a, he thinks he's a paragon of the future. Yeah. Essentially, like he thinks he's just speeding up the natural transition towards the thing, towards a, a world where we all live underwater. And he basically says to them, well, well that doesn't uh, justify mass murder. And he says, well, I'm willing to be... Uh, Except the judgment of posterity for it. Basically, I'm I'm willing to be looked upon poorly in the future if this, if my grandly future comes to fruition. 
And how he's going to do that is he's going to be sending two, at least initially, sending two nuclear submarines out to destroy both uh, Moscow and uh, New York. Just, like, blow them off the face of the, the Earth. And then you'll get, so, like, the Russians against the... Uh, like, the, the nuclear powers fighting with each other, too. Like, it's, you know, a similar plot from before, but with tweaks to it. And then we have the giant, like, battle within the within the, the main set and just tons of... Basically, this entire tanker is being round full of steam and we need to... <laughs> just need to get through. <laughs> well, I had to put that line in because it's just like... Just really <laughs> um, but you have the situation where the main operation room has this big iron plating and someone tries to throw grenades through it, but it just doesn't work and... You have people. You have one of the captains dies in during the battle scene, and get to the point where, like you say, Bond gets the nuclear weapon, manages to pull the, the detonator out of it, uses that to. I, I do like the fact that he crawls along that main camera from the top, just hanging off that, and so it means that he's completely out of shot from the operations room. He drops it in there. It blows the place up. Against the operations thing, but they find out it's too late to do that. But they discover what they can do is recalibrate the submarines to instead of shooting at their intended targets, basically send them instructions to shoot at a new target instead, which none of them seem to find suspicious at the very <laughs> last minute. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's, it's just like the very like soldier mentality of like, oh, orders come in, have to do them. Like, literally, no full fall or anything like that. Just, oh, got orders, have to change it. And then they just shoot at each other instead. And it's nukes. Yeah. Get, so it's like mushroom cloud effects, yeah. two nuclear bombs went off. And mm-hmm. I mean, usually when nuclear bombs go off, it's a, it's a big deal. And, um, you know, it's just sort of like, yay, you know, but um, we get the whole thing where he goes to see Stromberg and our big, like, how does the villain die is Stromberg sitting at a table and <laughs> He's got this like little tube underneath his table and he tries to shoot Bond with this explosive. Um, originally, Bond was not supposed to be sitting down. And Roger Moore was like, I should be sitting down. Isn't that cooler? So I have to jump out. And they're like, well, we didn't rig it up like that. So you better jump. <laughs> so he, uh, he almost ended up getting hurt with that. But then Bond just straight up shoots Stromberg like five times. It's just weird to me. It's always come off weird. I mean, I like that the first couple of shots go through the barrel thing that they have. Mm-hmm. So it feels a little bit more personal when then you just shoots him in the chest. Just it's like, like okay. the, I'll shoot it uh, through the, your own little trap. Also, bang, 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 you motherfucker. <laughs> like it's just kinda, and the death is bad. He's just, ah, uh, ah, uh, like, Basically, you know. he's just showing the villains how it's done. When you have your enemy in front of you, just fucking shoot them in the chest multiple times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and why nobody does this to him will remain a mystery for another 20 films. Then what if that happens in No Time to Die? Somebody's just like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Bang. And it's like, Bond's dead. I'll be so pissed. <laughs> <laughs> well, it opens, it opens the door for logic in future <laughs> films. I mean, come on. But obviously, one of the reasons why they did it like this is, you know, I mean, Stromberg's not going to be some big physical threat 
And we know that we have another physical threat going forward that we can have a fight with, with, uh, with Jaws. There's one thing that really freaks me out. It's the fact that this guy, Jaws, is seven foot one. Or whatever. It's around about that height. Seven he's, he's a massive monster of a man. One has one bullet and he manages to hit his fucking teeth. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun, though. Yeah, ricochets off of that. But it's like, yeah, it why fun. would you aim at, a, at the one part that you shouldn't be aiming at? Maybe his teeth are just like, they, they draw bullets to it. They got that magnet from uh, Living Let Die. <laughs> Well, clearly, is it's clearly magnetic because we find that out very soon. <laughs> That's how he uh, dispatches the jaws with the help of a giant magnet, and uh, yeah, picks him up, takes him over, and drops him in the shark tank. You know but what, jaws... what I love about? Oh, good. Just, oh, just what I love about that sequence in particular is that after Bond falls down, he's right next to the crane. He just looks over at Jaws and just smiling, just like, yeah. just like, it's like ah, oh, this is. Uh... Uh, lovely weather, isn't it? And stuff like that. And as Jaws approaches him and then he gets caught up in the with his teeth right attached to it. And instead of Jaws being killed by the shark, you know, the kind of like uh hoisted by your own petard type of thing, Jaws bites the shark. So he doesn't die. And apparently on the screenings of this, people were so super happy cheering because they were just kind of like, This guy's great. Like, yeah, you didn't kill him. Uh, later on, we get to see him uh, swimming around. So, like, we know for a fact that he's like Jaws is cool. He's still, he's still, uh, he's still around. Mm-hmm. I like that. He lives to bite another day. <laughs> this is my favorite Jaws film. <laughs> <laughs> they should just do the whole series like that. Tomorrow never bites. Uh, you know. And then obviously the draws are not enough. Stuff. They start firing the um, torpedoes into Atlantis, and Atlantis starts to take on water, which is the one excuse to have Anya in a wet dress. Mm, yeah. Fan of that. I'll allow it. I mean, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> and I managed to get into this escape pod, which is like the coziest, like, it's fucking nicer <laughs> than my own apartment. <laughs> Bond's like, uh, oh, hey, champagne. Anyone who drinks Dom Perignon 52 can't be all that bad. Maybe, you know, we misinterpreted him. But she pulls out a gun. And you're like, oh yeah, because she's going to kill him. But she doesn't shoot. And the quirk pops off. Bond asks for a final request, which is to get out of their wet clothes. <laughs> and she's just like, ah, James, all right. You know, it's time to sleep with each other instead of sleeping with the fishes, I guess you could say. She's like, you know, well, what are our superiors going to say? And um, yeah, they don't need to know that kind of thing. But they get snatched up, and M's like, 007, and Google's like, triple X. And Defense Minister goes, Bond, what do you think you're doing? Bond has the final line of the film, keeping the British end up, sir. See, I don't like that line. I love it. I don't, think it. I don't think it's clever. I think they think that's clever than it actually is. I really think it should have been something to do with international relations. <laughs> I just feel like it makes more sense for that to be like the British end up like only people in Britain know what that expression means. Yeah. I mean, everyone knows what it means means in terms of like what Bond's saying it as, but it's not an expression that people really say. I'm sure it's been said a lot more after this movie. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. But it's just like, it wasn't a common phrase or anything like that. It's just like, Oh, keeping the British end up, sir. It's just like, 
It's more. It's more like she's a. He's more like he's keeping the Russian end up because I assume like. Well, I don't want to go into the details of that yeah. side of the thing, but, but, but yeah, I, I don't. I wasn't super keen on the final line. I love oh, the yeah. line, but I'll tell you what I hate is right after that. It goes into this military march. Nobody does a bad arc. Oh, I, I really like that. That's I hate it. <laughs> That's hilarious. Just like it's just like they managed to do. I I couldn't believe they managed to do this Carly Rae Simon song. It's like a military march thing, essentially. <laughs> like, oh, the the big brass choir is gonna sing. Uh, um, nobody does it better. <laughs> Makes me feel sad for the rest. It's like, yeah. Music like, is one like, of the biggest downsides of this movie for me, for sure. It almost feels like um, they would do like a big brass band version of um, um, Near Far, Wherever You Are, the Titanic song, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's the end. James Bond will return in For Your Eyes Only, but that's not true because Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out, so they're like, nah, let's do Moonraker. <laughs> yep. Fair enough. They're, they're, they're nothing if not uh, keeping up with the times. Yeah, they did the Kung Fu stuff, then you got the Jaws stuff, now you're going to get the Star Wars stuff, and you know, they pivot once in a while with this franchise. So let's talk about the uh, the elements. Um, let's talk about the girls, because we haven't gotten super duper deep into uh, Anya, not as much as Bond has, at least. Uh, we got the log cabin girl. No, she's just, you know, she's a bit part. Not a big deal. And um, Felicia and Naomi. And uh, I guess technically the um, receptionist. You kind of classify her, but not really. Uh, and we got Anya. So the biggest one, of course, is Anya. She's the main Bond girl. What are you guys thinking about uh, for the Bond girls in this one? Anya was good. Seemed like... Uh... You know, like at the start of something new where maybe they could be equals, at least to a certain extent of the movie. Uh, the rest didn't really stand out that strong to me. So I'll turn it over to Callum because I know he had said that there was actually somebody who he enjoyed more than Anya. I don't say enjoyed more than Anya. I meant just from a pure beauty standpoint. Well, Naomi, right? Second, dive into it. Hmm? Naomi? Yeah, Naomi, yeah. I, yeah, I, I, there was just something about Naomi. I mean, to be fair, she had like a supermodel body, and to be fair, it's like it's one A, one B. It's not like like one's a, a ten and the other one's a eight or anything like that. It's just just personal preference. But, yeah, I mean, she's uh, she's a model. Like her, yeah. Uh, her big selling point to get into the movie is look at how attractive this girl is. But I really liked Anya for the most part of the movie. I think even though she was a damsel distressed at the end of it, that's I don't want to blame that on her character. I want to blame that more on the actual structure of the movie was given. So I feel like she could have been more... I mean, they demonstrated throughout the movie that she was capable and she was intelligent and she was a really good spy, but they just let it down towards the end. And so I don't want that to be taken away from her too much. So she's definitely not at the like the absolute top, but I like the fact that she was given a lot of airtime. Like she was there from pretty much the very start of the movie all the way through to the end. So I, I appreciate that continuity as well. But I've, all the rest of the Bond girls were just there. They were just filler. I've got uh, Felicia just above Mademoiselle Laporte from the beginning of Thunderball. 
uh, and below Nancy from Our Majesty's Secret Service. Log Cabin Girl's not too far off from there. She's just below Miss um, Caruso for me. Naomi's not too far off from that either. I, mean, I have her even below Vita and Zora, the Gypsy Girls. But Anya's towards the top. She's not like a. I have her above Aki, for instance. But she's one, two, three, four, five, six, and number eight at the moment uh, for me. Lower than Tracy. Lower than uh, like Domino, lower than Pussy Galore, Fiona, and whatever. But um, if they would have nailed that last section of the movie, she'd probably be like number three for me at that point. They just really drop her off, and it's a shame. Yeah, I have I have a currently ranked number. Well. It's technically number five, but I'm going to say four because you Money don't Penny, yeah. really count Miss Moneypenny. <laughs> like, obviously, she is the perennial one, but, like, that makes it unfair on the rest of them. But, yeah, she in my, in my uh, rankings right now, she's just below Tracy, Fiona, and Domino. Yeah, and I've got to go through my rankings, but she'll be top five as it stands right now. Like, I think Domino top, and then she'll be if not number three she'll be number four on the uh, gadgets side of things we've got the label maker watch we get the ski pole gun the microfilm viewer the knockout gas cigarette the decapitation cup and saucers the spring seat the hookah gun the car of course this is like the biggest one out of all of them we got the motorcycle you know the rocket car right? what's that you know what the car's name is right wet nelly <laughs> Yeah, to as a follow-on from the um the previous Nelly, little Nelly, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I I, I kind of like it. I like the con- again continuity. And it's a shame that they didn't really like full blown say that in the movie, just to kind of be like, oh, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, I'm a big fan of how they actually gave him some gadgets in this one because the, you know, we had two movies ago we didn't even have Q. We got a gadget, but we didn't get Q. And the last movie we got Q, but we didn't really get a whole lot of gadgets. This one, they're like, nah, screw it. Let's do a bunch of them. I like them overall. I mean, label maker watch isn't going to be like a top tier type of thing, but the car is the biggest standout. And the car's cool. I really like them, especially all the ones that they just showed off real quick. Again, kind of like I said with, you know, Jaws being what you come for in these Bond movies. Like, this is the kind of silly stuff they should get more into. Yeah, the gadgets were a, a highlight. I think that they all they all in some way served a purpose, whether it was functional or just to entertain. So yeah, I think that it's good to have a a diverse number of them. On the allies side of things, we got the typical Money Penny and M and Q. We got the first appearance of Sir Frederick Gray, which we'll see the Minister of Defense quite a bit going forward. Same with General Gogol. We'll actually see Admiral Hargraves again. Kinda, but not really, but they haven't said so. So like, you know how there's that thing with the man with the golden gun where there's the gangster at the beginning of the movie and it's like, well, that could technically be Rodney as the gangster from Diamonds Are Forever because they don't do anything that directly contradicts it and it is the same actor. The guy who plays Admiral Hargraves in this eventually plays M. And... 
the theory going around is like, well, then is he playing the same M or did Admiral Hargraves get promoted to M? Because they don't do anything that contradicts that he could be the previous M. But then again, they don't do anything that says, okay, like, oh, remember that, you know, when we were talking about Goldfinger, like that kind of thing. So it's kind of strange. And a lot of people are like, well, the first one's Miles Messervy, and then this one's Admiral Hargraves is M. And it, it's kind of just like, I don't know, it's, it's kind of weird. But on the Allies side of things, outside of Anya, because she's the main Bond girl, whatever, how are you guys feeling about the Allies and sidekicks and such? They're fine. Go ahead. Yeah, I think he was probably the, the standout one, as he typically is. But... Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think they were, like, super standout on this movie. They're just, for the most part there, I think Q is the one that steals it a little bit with some of his scenes. Yeah, Q is always going to be right at the top. Um, they're, like, M and Moneypenny, you know, you don't get a lot of them. Hargraves was fine. Like, there was nothing really standout to me. Oh, and there's the captain, too. Like, um... The guy who's like, you know, we only got three minutes. That kind of guy. Uh, they're just like, they're fine, you know, for the most part. Because it's really, it's all about Anya. So you're not going to give a whole lot of attention to the other allies when she's the main one. Just the same as you're not going to give a whole lot of attention to the villains like uh, Naomi and Sandor when you got Jaws, you know? I did appreciate out of, actually, outside of QB, one that I did appreciate was the, uh, the American submarine captain. Yeah. I think he was very capable. So the villain side, uh, you got Naomi, you got Stromberg, you got Sandor, and you got Jaws. Um, I don't think that we're going to disagree here that Jaws is the number one with the ranking of, as far as that's concerned. Like uh, oh, yeah. nobody, nobody's I mean, going to be like Sandor is so much better. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Jaws was amazing. Jaws is what like Bond henchmen should be. Yeah, an unkillable destruction like element of destruction that just will rip through anybody and anything so yeah i appreciated jaws a a lot he is currently on my rankings for my like my fresh thing because i mentioned before i i did a ranking before i started this uh rewatch for the 50th time type of thing but i'm doing them when they're really fresh in my memory and um jaws right now is my number three henchman I got Fiona, and then Ajab, and then Jaws, who's just above Red Grant and Nick Knack and Baron Samadai and whatnot. Um, can't say the same about Sandor. Uh, Naomi, like, Naomi's just above Vargas. Sandor's just a little bit above her, because they're just, you know, they're just there, kind of. Naomi's hot. Sandor's big. Kind of like Babatunde. Uh, Stromberg, though, he's low. I'm not a big Stromberg fan. I have him just above the Blofeld from Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah, he's not going to rank high. I mean, on the one hand, him being absolutely batshit is great. But like I said in the beginning, there wasn't anything crazy memorable here for me. And this whole film, honestly, is probably going to be right in the middle. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't say I dislike him, 
because there's only really been two villains that I disliked, and they're two of the Blofelds. Because they just don't they just don't work and they don't come across as threatening at all. I love the fact that Stromberg's just absolutely insane. And that's his character trait. And he thinks that he's doing something for his own purpose. So I like that element of his character. I just feel that he's not in any way threatening. But I would really put him on a par with someone like Goldfinger, in that he just is a guy that lets other people do his bidding for him. And he's pretty useless when it comes down to him actually dealing with Bond 101. So right now on our rankings list, uh, Rob hasn't sorted out a couple of them yet, but we have some that are kind of around the same ranges, like uh, Rob's got Scaramanga at number one, Calm's got Scaramanga at number two, and I've got him at number three, <laughs> like that kind of thing. Uh, Callum is much higher up, I think, on Largo. Yeah, I've got Largo at like number seven, and he's got him at number three. Um, Largo is one of the ones that Rob hasn't ranked yet. Where would you put a uh, Largo? You um, think Rob? I'm gonna probably take. Well, I'm assuming you're in there too, so I will just put him between gold, not between, uh, underneath the Blofeld from Rush with Love. So he's pretty high up on your list too. Yeah, I've got like Rosa Kleb up higher than you guys do. Uh, she's just under Scaramanga for me because I've got. The From Russia with Love and the Thunderball version of Blofeld are my number one and number two. Um, we all have... Uh, I'm, I'm thinking we're all going Blofeld from Diamonds Are Forever as being one of the absolute worst. Because yeah. it's just, you know, the yeah. uh, dressing up like a, an old grandmother and and all that. Uh, we got Dr. No towards the end of things, for sure. Uh, Stromberg not ranking super high. For uh, for Callum and I, and um, I mean he's gonna end up right now in the middle, but I'm sure he'll be pretty bottom tier by the end of this journey. So that's like uh, Doctor Kananga, for instance, number one for Callum. Kananga is, uh, I think, sixth for me underneath Goldfinger, Rose Club, some of the other people that are like that. To give you a little bit of a breakdown of like how we're kind of ranking these so far. So for some people that are like, you know, oh, the best one is um is Goldfinger. Goldfinger, he's high up on Rob's. He's in the middle for me, in the middle for Callum. We got plenty more villains to go yet. We got uh, at least a dozen or so. Uh, so I'm, I mean, some of them obviously aren't going to go super high up. I don't think that anybody's going to have like um, Elliot Carver in the very, very, very top. I'm assuming that we're all going to have like Yanis and uh, Franz Sanchez and a couple other people. I'm very curious how Hugo Drax in the next one is going to rank compared to uh, Carl Stromberg for everybody. Because in general, Moonraker is this exact same film. Like... The Spy Who Loved Me and Runeraker are basically you take the same template of the movie and you change a couple things. But I think it's honestly a much better movie. There's a little bit goofiness here and there and that's kind of a little bit like really? You, you think that one's better? But it's so much more watchable to me than The Spy Who Loved Me and some people really think that The Spy Who Loved Me is a more serious movie. I think it's more goofy. So oh, it's already... This is definitely on the more goofy end of things. 
like it's not diamonds are forever. It's not that bad, but I don't take it as this type of, we need to go back to the basics and go with the spy mission type of thing. I'm like, no, you got bond in a submarine car, you know, like <laughs> that's, that's, we're not getting Dr. No. And from us with love here, we're getting more diamonds are forever ish with uh more. So I know that that was one of the things that you were interested in going with uh, Callum was that whole idea of when you get into the more stuff, it gets a little weird. Is this getting a little bit closer to that type of range for you? Or did we already hit it with uh, with the golden gun and stuff? I mean, honestly, no, not not really. I I don't feel this movie's that goofy. I think it is pretty serious. There are elements to it which make it more fun with the but I think a car turning into a submarine is not that far fetched, as weird as that sounds. Like I was more like completely out of my mind my mind was blown by that stupid helicopter thing that Bond flew, flew like the old the original Nelly uh, thing because it just because it's completely impractical. This I could understand like in the quote-unquote Bond universe, somebody going, yeah, let's make a car that is also doubles up as a submarine. It's like, okay, that's what, that's one of the things that I would have imagined Q's like got first on his agenda, almost. There are a few bits and pieces, like where they do show off the different um, the different gadgets they're working on and stuff like that. And like Jaws is obviously a more ridiculous villain than some of the other ones we would see in the original uh, Bond movies. But I don't think it's... I feel like that is all swayed with that's all just a little bit of just added color and flavor onto what was actually a pretty well-grounded story that was just missing a few bits to actually be to maximize what is what potential it had. Like the Atlantis thing sense. doesn't seem a little bit too far-fetched. I mean, obviously, obviously it's, it's a, it is a bit more like a megalomaniac villain. It's not something that's more grounded in reality. I'll give you that. I'd, I don't, but I, it's not something that really takes it away from me. I mean, I liked the actual element of it being slightly different in terms of like every other villain has been in the business of making money or turning the Russians and the US against each other and stuff like that. This guy just wants to destroy the world. And that's, and again, that's bizarre, but it's a change of pace, which I appreciate. I see that, Rob, you're, uh, you're adjusting your villain list yeah, here. Yeah, I got the villains. Sorted. You're missing uh, for much with loves Blofeld. Oh, <laughs> it's exactly it's basically the same as Thunderbolts. Yeah, Blofeld. that's like just it's just the the guy sitting behind the chair kind of thing. Right. Uh, not the over the top kill Bond now from You Only Live Twice or the I got new earlobes from Osmosis and stuff. Uh, so we're given a. I think overall we're given a, a thumbs up on the girls for Anya, even though it's not as good as it could have been. Uh, yeah. Mostly a thumbs up for the allies. Nothing bad. Just kind of nobody's going to be like, oh yeah, Captain Forsyth or whatever. Like, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, thumbs up on the gadgets. And uh, thumbs up on Jaws at the very least for the villains. Mm-hmm. Thumbs way up. On the action and the humor, um, I think that the humor is pretty damn good outside of the music. 
Well, my favorite scene was the out of order, so I gotta go thumbs up on humor. Yeah, the humor's on point in this one. It's not too over the top. And uh, action-wise, how are you guys feeling? I, th- I still think his some of his fight scenes are way too over-choreographed. But they look just a bit too... They don't look as gritty as the Connery versions. But... Like there was the big fight scene in that uh, in the in the main base, and that was very action packed as well. So I, I I can't say that it wasn't blow away. It's like middle of the road, I think. But I would I would give it like a tentative thumbs up. I liked it. I like a good train fight, especially like so far these have been some of my more favorite fight scenes. They had the big schmas with. The submarine, so I'll give it a thumbs up, but it's not like, oh man, I need to watch this, you know, again. This, in terms of replay value, not high up on my list. Not for mine either. Um, oh, and for the music, uh, major, major thumbs up on Nobody Does It Better. Major, major thumbs down on everything else for me on the music side of things. Um, not a fan of the funky, but thumbs up on the main theme. Yeah, main theme is awesome. It's one of my favorites. So, shaken, not stirred. How you guys feeling about the spy who loved me? We got ten films down. We we got we firmly know at this point like what we like, what we don't like about the series. I'm shaking. Yeah, so it's not like again, not the greatest thing I've ever seen, but definitely not stirred. Uh, shaken for me. I've got it ranked fourth at the moment out of the ten. I've got a fourth from last. <laughs> it's uh it's what a fifth from last. Uh oh yeah, fifth from last, yeah. Um it's just barely over you only live twice for me. Where exactly where I'm putting it. <laughs> like there's that range of like I guess like that's where the split is for me with um like Thunderball and You Only Live Twice, where one of them I can appreciate a little bit more of where they were going and what they were doing and whatever, and then some other ones are kind of like, well, but you're going in a different direction here. Thunderball is where you get to where I'm like, yeah, it's not my favorite, but I can see why people really dig it. And then once you start going lower than Thunderball, then you get to the no, nah, there's problems with this, I think. And Spy Who Loved Me is one of them that is right in that teetering of that line. Uh, it's not a, a replay one for me. Uh, out of the ones that we've seen so far, for instance, I've got ranked uh, like From Us With Love and Goldfinger and The Man With The Golden Gun and Live and Let Die because those are the ones I can actually pop in and watch. Thunderball, I can't watch as often. And I can watch The Spy Who Loved Me more than... On Her Majesty's Secret Service, for instance, but it's not one of the ones that I love. I'll tell you already, like Moonraker, I like better than this. I think if you took all the elements of The Spy Who Loved Me and all the elements of Moonraker, it is basically one movie. And if you take the good stuff from the one movie and the good stuff from the other one, I think you got a much better Bond film. But neither of them really hit exactly what they need to hit so like the bond girl in the next one she's basically anya but i think that she's better but i think that anya's a little bit more attractive and you got the bond villain is better in the next one 
But the henchman, outside of one of them, isn't quite as good. So then that kind of stinks. And then you've got the humor is kind of funnier, but it's also a little hokier too. And it, like it, it's kind of some movies in this franchise really work together. Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace literally run into each other. And something like, uh, say, you know, For Much With Love and Dr. No, they've got like a kind of connection or whatever. Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker, you got to watch them as like a twofer kind of. So it's a good thing that we're good doing this and that kind of thing. So Spy Who Loved Me is in the middle range for Rob and I, and it's a little bit above that for Callum. Uh, I'll, I'll go just barely shaken, I guess, is what you would say for me. So it's shaken for you guys too. Any other yeah. thoughts you guys have for uh, The Spy Who Loved Me? Uh, well, as I'm looking at our breakdowns, it's clear that On Her Majesty's Secret Service is just like that weird tipping point. Because for me, that's like, we're at 10 films, that's the halfway mark for me. For Callum, it's the best. And Tony, you just don't like it very much. Yeah. For me, this film kicks off like the lesser half of the the films that we've seen. Like, I enjoyed it. Like I said, not stirred, but it's not one that I'm going to go back and watch again. Yeah, I mean, I can only say about this film. I think it's really... I, say, I think it does a better job telling the, the love story aspect than... Uh, from Russia with Love does, which is why I rank it significantly ahead of that. But I still think it's about two or three scenes short of being where you could have cut maybe a few bits out which were pretty irrelevant and actually told that story a bit more in depth. If it does that, then it would be pushing really right near the top for me. But yeah, other than that, I think I, I mean I enjoyed just watching it. I'm enjoying the more movies. There hasn't actually been a more movie that I've totally disliked. Living at Die is the most batshit crazy one, <laughs> for sure, so far. But there hasn't actually, I'm actually surprised with just, I enjoy the more movies so far. Alrighty, so, uh, yeah, last thing for us to do is just round things out here with some, uh, some plugs, some information about what's going on, what you guys can check out going forward and everything. Uh, this is being recorded on the 8th of March, and it's not going to come out until. Uh, April in some fashion, but I'm hoping at this point, uh, like we've gotten through WrestleMania season <laughs> and that I'm still around and I've, I've got my mental faculties and everything because <laughs> God Jesus. knows that, that uh, those weeks of WrestleMania are going to be like, uh, they're going to completely drain me. I'm going to, I'm not going to sleep and I'm not going to whatever. That is not the turn I expected. You hope you still have your mental faculties. <laughs> I don't think you have them now. First of all, <laughs> Jeez, Tony. <laughs> we'll see, because maybe oh, at that point we'll be recording. Oh God, at that point we're going to be recording something like uh, like Octopussy, or maybe a View to a Kill, and um, those are weird. So I might those might be like real giggly or something. I might just be like completely sleep deprived. And just being like, it's Octopussy. Her name's Octopussy. <laughs> like, you know, kind of like, we'll see. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's 
stay tuned for that at the very least. And if you are enjoying this franchise, consider donating to the Patreon and help sponsor us to do some more going forward because there's an endless supply of Bond content that we could give you. We could do things based off of the video games. We could do things based off of spinoff things and uh, parody things and so on and so forth. So uh, help us grow, help this channel grow and the website get to a spot where we can do some more of these kind of things too. And um, if you are following the WrestleMania side of things and stuff, go to smartcoutmoment.com. Check out all the pro wrestling stuff that I've got going on there. Plenty of different podcasts. If you keep wanting to hear more about us and you want of the pro wrestling stuff instead of the movie stuff and the TV show stuff and everything else that's happening on Fanboys. And these guys do plenty of other things when it comes to the pro wrestling side of things as well. Toss out what do you got going on or you think is going on at this point when they're listening to this, Rob? Well, undoubtedly what's going on is WrestleMania season or we have just finished. Either way, Fightful has got all your scoops. So go over to Fightful.com, check out Fightful Select, check out WrestleZone.com. Maybe we're already talking about uh, AEW champion Christian Cage. Highly doubt it, but who knows? Um, Yeah, that's what I've got going on. And Calum and I will probably have some other project in the works. But Calum, what do you got going on? For sure. At this point in time, for sure, what I can say is that you can check out all the articles on smartcatmoment.com, especially the power rankings, because I'll still be working on those, especially around WrestleMania season, because that's where things get turned on its head, as it were, because I just reset the entire rankings for the year. Um, Other than that, you can follow me on Twitter, Rigmeister14, and check out the Smart Cat Moment uh, YouTube channel or a podcast feed to check out all the archive episodes of the Paul Heyman Smackdown podcast and 2001 A Wrestling Odyssey if you're a big fan of retro wrestling content from around about the Attitude Era, Ruthless Aggression Era, era that type of thing. So I really yeah, want to point out that we are uh, about a month out from WrestleMania and all of us have clearly stated that within the next month everything might just be turned on its head i hope yeah. we are in good spirits when we're here in a month from now and if anything this will be a great podcast to reflect on it is getting a little fitting though i think if we if we stick to the schedule that we've been recording so next week we will do uh this on recording that on the 15th and so on and so forth so uh, for your eyes only, Octopussy. We would be doing, on the week of WrestleMania, we would be doing A View to a Kill, and then the one afterward would be The Living Daylights. So it'll end up being kind of fitting to be like, on the craziest week, we're going to do the one that's the namesake of this <laughs> series. And kind of be like, that's the one with uh, Christopher Walken. <laughs> and, you know... Uh, a 59-year-old James Bond and stuff. So strap yourselves in for that, everybody. And uh, for everything else that's coming your way, you can follow me at Tony Mango. You can follow, obviously, Fanboys Anonymous on Facebook and Twitter and elsewhere. Subscribe to all these YouTube channels and keep uh, paying attention to the websites and just uh, you know, keep listening. Hopefully you're enjoying these as much as we're enjoying bringing them to you because James Bond and the Review to a Kill podcast will return with Moonraker. That is not what you said at the end of the film. <laughs> Liar. <laughs>